expression of our devotion to prayer. This week, we want to be mentored in prayer by Moses, expression of our devotion to prayer. This week, we want to be mentored in prayer by Moses, expression of our devotion to prayer. This week, we want to be mentored in prayer by Moses. Thinking caps on today and pay close attention. This prayer is so helpful and instructive for us. It is a bit of a minefield, though, and raises questions that I don't want to obscure our zeal for prayer and our trust and confidence in God in it, but we're going to have to take a shot at addressing them, and they are, uh, they are difficult. So you're going to have to think with me. You're probably going to have to elbow whoever's sitting next to you to keep them with us. So uh, you have my permission. Elbows, elbows up, ready to go. Um, my suggestion is, is that there are places, not geographical places, but life, life's kind of places. There are lives that you can live, a lifestyle you can live, a person you can be where God loves to pour out his blessing on that life. And from that life, I believe there are prayers you can pray that God loves to grant, okay? Um, not that God is obligated or we merit God's grace and his answers to our prayers in some way, shape, or form, um, nor am I saying that God does not answer prayers outside of living that kind of life. He does. He's the God who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, Jesus says. Um, but I believe there's a life you can live that causes you to pray prayers that, that you pray most naturally out of that life that God is most happy to grant. Um, I think that's what's behind what James is saying in James 5. When he says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great power as it's working. Now, there's a sense in which every single Christian has access to this kind of prayer because we are made righteous in Christ. And, and this promise is for us, but I think James has something a little bit more specific even in mind, and that is that people who follow Christ and live a righteous life, live out their righteousness, um, they have a special effectiveness to their prayers. You know, James has written elsewhere about how what you live, how you live, your passions affect prayer. In James 4, he says, you ask and you don't receive. He's talking about prayer. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Um, James has in mind that there's an effectiveness available to all believers in Christ. But I believe that those who are living lives in that place where God is happiest to bless and pray prayers that he's most eager to grant, that's where the most effective prayer happens, is it flows out of that life. You could say it inversely, sin hinders prayer. Okay. Embracing sin hinders our prayers. It takes us away from the place of God's blessing and makes it increasingly difficult for us to pray prayers God is eager to grant. Now, in light of that, that there's a life that we can live that makes our prayers most effective. There are prayers that we can pray that God is most happy to answer. Um, we are looking at Moses' prayer today because Moses is living that life and praying those prayers. And we want him to mentor us in that. 
So if you'll open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13 first and then 14 where the prayer is, um, we'll look at that together. And as you turn there, I'd just like to pray for us. Okay. Jesus, teach us how to pray. Please teach us how to pray. Bring the Father to us and show us his glory today that we might pray in ways that not only bring his mercies to us, but honor him as great. Jesus, teach us how to pray. Um, give us teachable, humble hearts now as we open the word and guard and guide my words that even though I, should I get off track, that even my careless words would point to your truth beautifully. You would do that for us. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we can look at Moses' prayer in chapter 14, chapter 13 kind of tells us the backstory that we need to know. Um, God's people, Israel, they've been miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt, as, as you probably remember. Okay? They have traveled across the desert, kind of grumbling as they go, and now they're on the verge of entering the promised land. Okay? God rescued them from Egypt, said they would be a free people living in their own bountiful land that he had promised. They are there. They are looking into it. When in Numbers 13, it's proposed, and God honors it here, saying, Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. That's the promised land, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe, send in a, a leader, a, a representative. And so Moses does this, and the spies report back on their findings. If you drop down about verse 25, you find this. At the end of 40 days, the spies returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people in Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. But the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Um, they'll go on to say down a few verses that in the eyes of these giant people, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seem to them. The mention of these giants, they were legendary, the Nephilim. Um, they, it was kind of like saying, we found the boogeyman there. You know, a big, mythical giant actually in the land. So that the giant grapes they brought back as testimony of God's promise being true, that the land was bountiful, now were terrifying to them because it reminded them of how large the inhabitants of the land were. And so Caleb and Joshua are desperately trying to persuade these people, but they will not listen. The congregation raised a loud cry, beginning of chapter 14, and all the people wept that night. And all the people of the land grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or, or would that we died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And so again and again, Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies, are desperately trying to convince them to believe God 
enter the land. And the people, this is how they respond to him. They said to one another, let us choose a leader, go back to Egypt. Then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. That's stoning as opposed to stoning them with like feathers and pillows. They mean business, right? Stone them with stones. It says the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Um, so this is then God's response to all this grumbling and murmuring about his provision for his people. The Lord pulls Moses aside and says, how long will this people despise me, Moses? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So God says, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And this is the point at which Moses prays, and we want him to mentor us, both in life and in prayer, as we watch his response to this extraordinary offer from God to start a new nation over just with you, Moses. Okay. Now, he prays in the verses that follow, and God responds to his prayer. Remember, God is going to judge the people and destroy them. Moses prays, and then down in verse 20, the Lord, in response to Moses' prayer, says, instead, I have pardoned them according to your word. So something changes between God says, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, and instead I will pardon them. And Moses' prayer is really the tipping point that lies in between these realities. Now, before we go any farther, there's kind of a big old but what about that some of you are already thinking about. And that is, did Moses' prayer change God's mind? God's going to destroy him. Moses prays, and God says, I'll forgive them. Now, there's still consequences that play out after that if you read the rest of the chapter, but he says, I will forgive them rather than destroy them. Did Moses' prayer change God's mind? And part of the problem that some of you are wrestling with right now, and rightly so, is that when we put the word change up alongside God, that creates some problems because the Scriptures teach that God is immutable. That's a 50-cent seminary word that means he doesn't change, right? He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. Um, scriptures like this in 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. It's an expression that means to change his mind. Some of the old versions may even say he won't repent. For he's not a man that he should have regret. Okay. Malachi chapter 3 says, I, the Lord, do not change. So, if we're going to phrase it more and narrow it down to what we're dealing with this morning, does prayer matter? Can it affect an unchanging God? Okay. Um, now, on the one hand... Um, Obviously, this is the minefield that I've got to walk through right now, okay? So, uh, you look, at, look for help to people who are smarter than you. One of them answered the question this way, does prayer change anything? His answer was, it depends. It's not particularly helpful, but probably true, right? It depends on what you mean 
by does it change anything? Now, on the one hand, some people look at prayers like Moses' prayer here and say that it really didn't change anything. What we have here is an anthropomorphism, which just means that God's giving human qualities so we can have some sense about what's going on here. But because God is changeless, um, prayer really did not affect any change here. And no doubt at times this kind of language is used to help us understand God better. Um, to say that because of his immutability, he is unresponsive to prayer, that creates more problems for me than just declaring anthropomorphism solves. Okay? For instance, um, the Bible twice says that God repented for something he had done in the past. And at least 11 times, it says he repented or would repent of something he was about to do in the future. Okay. Again, 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. God has a regret, right? And yet just a few verses later in verse 29, the verse we read, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. How is it that in one single chapter of the Bible, God can have a regret about something that he brought about, Saul's kingship, and then not have a regret because he's changeless. He's not like a man. And um, I was helped by what John Piper drew out in this. He says, God's responses, what, what's being said here, are not like man's. They are never based on ignorance of what you and I will do. He foresees our changes, knows the perfect response to each change, and plans to respond according to his own perfect wisdom and righteousness and goodness and power to maintain his plan and purpose in the world. God's variations, as we experience them, are part of a unified and unchanging plan to accomplish his great purposes in the world. What distinguishes God from man is that man often changes his mind because he can't foresee all that's coming. But God, on the other hand, always foresees what is coming and changes his mind only in response to that foreseen situation. So there's a kind of changelessness in God that's not in man. So what we would say is that even though God's plan may not change, yet he is still responsive to prayer. And, and that even our prayers we pray are part of his plan. They matter. They are part of the way that God has decreed that grace and mercy should come to the world. So if we pray, the plan unfolds one way. If we don't, God's plan would unfold a different way. He knew beforehand. He planned it out. In a sense, he has not changed, but yet in a very real sense, the Scripture says he responds, and prayer determines, in a sense, affects that response. Again, look at what Scripture says about how prayer affects things. James chapter 4, we cited this already, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot, or covet, excuse me, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. 
Clearly, James is saying here that things are contingent upon our asking that you sometimes you have or don't have because you do or don't ask or you ask wrongly. So asking, praying matters. Um, I don't think we'd be comfortable saying that the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17 was not effective in some way. Consider verses like this from Psalm 66. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Okay. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It teaches us that the effectiveness of prayer can be hindered by cherishing our sin on the one hand, by dishonoring our wives, another kind of sin, on the other. So clearly, prayer is affected by our life and prayer is effective in our praying. So to plead that God does not change as rendering prayer practically impotent, I don't think that's a satisfying answer. I think we, if we end up the, thinking that God does not respond to our prayers because he's immutable, then we have to rethink how those things can coexist because they coexist um, happily in the Bible. Now, on the other hand, we don't want to say that God is somehow dependent on our prayers in a way that makes him come off a bit inept, if not downright ignorant. Consider this prayer we're going to look at of Moses, where he prays and God does something different as a result than what he had de declared that he would do. It's not as though God says something, Moses prays, informs God, and God goes, great idea, Moses. Why didn't I think of that? Okay, that's not our God. We're not informing him of things he does not know. At points, if we think like that, we end up being smarter than God. And that should be a proposition that always troubles you. Whenever you think you're smarter in God than God, that's a problem. Okay. Now, related to this error or this pole of thinking is that somehow God has to answer our prayers. If we just tag on in Jesus' name at the end, then God becomes some kind of spiritual vending machine. And if you shake it just right and you put your coin in, your treat comes out or you get your money back. That's not, that, again, that's not what our God says. It's not how prayer operates in the Scripture. We live somewhere in between these two poles of an unresponsive God or an uninformed God. We do worship an immutable God, which is what, in part, makes him so trustworthy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we cannot let that make him unresponsive. Nor does God need our insights or our prayers to sort things out. He's not just immutable. He's also omniscient. He knows all things. Prayer matters. It affects the way things are and will be in our lives and the lives of others. It's the means by which God has determined to pour his grace and mercy out in our lives. Even, as I mentioned, my praying is part of God's good plan. So that my praying does not change God's plan necessarily because it's part of it. 
But his plan, in fact, is different if I pray or if I had not prayed. Let me, now that I've confused you horribly, let me let, let you listen to some wiser voices that just reinforce the beauty and the power of prayer within the realm of a sovereign God. These may be surprising voices for some of you. If there's a guy that believes in the sovereignty and the immutability of God, it's a guy named John Calvin. Okay, he would be the guy. And he says, writing about Elijah's prayer that caused the rain to stop in the Old Testament, James talks about that. He says, it was a notable event for God to put heaven, for God to put heaven in some sense under the control of Elijah's prayers to be obedient to his requests. By his prayers, Elijah kept heaven shut for two years and a half. Then he opened it and made it suddenly pour with a great rain from which we may see the miraculous power of prayer. Prayer matters. It's how God pours his power and grace out into our lives. This one was helpful for me, again, surprisingly, from Karl Barth. He speaks of God this way. He says, God's not deaf. He listens. More than that, he acts. He does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action. That's what the word answer means. The fact that God yields to man's petitions, changing his intentions in response to man's prayer is not a sign of weakness. He himself, in the glory of his majesty and power, has so willed it. So we see, uh, even from the voices of these far wiser men, that prayer matters. It affects both us and others in the world in which we live. It's the means by which God loves to pour out his power and grace into our lives. All the while, consistent with his sovereign lordship, his immutability, and his omniscience of all things. Philip Yancey says this, and this just, this just makes sense to us. So just listen to this. Philip Yancey writes about traveling to places like um, Myanmar, Burma, and China, where he says governments are more likely to summon Christian leaders to prison than to the seat of power. He said, I've heard appalling stories of persecution, 20 years in a frigid cell without a blanket of beatings and torture and intimidation. I interviewed a Chinese pastor who spent two decades in prison and yet would continue to hold baptisms, recognizing that he may face more. What can, I, what can Christians in the rest of the world do for you, he asks. And every time, without exception, Yancey says, I get the same answer. You can pray. Please tell the church to pray for us. Because prayer, in a mysterious way, but a real way, makes a difference. It, it allows God, it is the means by which God has poured his mercy and power into our lives and the lives of others. It is not just anthropomorphism, though sometimes that's what it is. And it does more than just affect us, though surely it does. It releases God's power and mercy in changing ways into our world. So we find Moses praying a prayer that matters for a rebellious people such that God, rather than judge them and take their lives, a couple million perhaps people are shown mercy and love and grace. How can we pray like that? Again, remember the setting for what we're about to talk about. The congregation is about to stone Moses with stones 
when the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. Moses' life is spared by God's intervention. The people's life's about to be spared by Moses' intervention. Because God responds again this way, how long shall this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've done among them? I'll strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they, he says to Moses. Uh, I want you to realize God's justified in this judgment. Okay? Um, this rebellion is not a one-time thing. They were not a bunch of really good people who were having a bad day. They were a bunch of really rebellious people who occasionally had good days. Um, and in this instance, uh, if you drop down a few verses, down about verse 22, God says, 10 times they've put me to test like this. And 10 times I've forgiven them. See, our God is a holy, just judge. John White connects that idea to prayer when he says, our God remains a God of holy judgment. What reason have we to suppose that he's changed over the past 2,000 years? He is immutable. He does not mellow with the passage of time. Think through the book of Revelation and the future judgments that are there just to confirm that idea. Our God is a just judge. He says, White continues and says, we cannot pray right if we fail to recognize these things. If you are to know the passion and boldness of Moses' prayer, you must stand where Moses stood. You must see our God as a consuming fire. And so the offer to Moses is stunning here. God will start over with him and do these people in. Moses will be the man. Israel will be known as the people of Moses from now on. Okay. And he's got a chance to do that. In one, in one little yes to God, he will get rid of two million grumblers and get to be the man. Okay. Watch Watch how Moses responds. But Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. Okay, if you judge all your people, take their lives, the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. The Egyptians will tell the Canaanites where they're going. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, kill them all, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. You know what's really interesting? It's not the first time God made this offer to Moses. Okay, this, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you offer. He did it before when they did the golden calf thing. You remember that where they made idols out of gold? Um, it's back in Exodus 32. And there God says to Moses, let me alone, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Same offer. And Moses is even more explicit in his response this time. You drop down a few verses in Exodus 32. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, 
This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Um, Moses, Moses is ready to give his life for these people. Um, that's, that's the life that Moses is living. He is so committed, so, so loves these people that he would rather die than see them perish. It sounds, it can ring in your ear a little bit like what Paul says in, in the New Testament. In the book of Romans chapter 9, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And this life, this intercessory life that Moses is able to make is a reflection of who Moses is. Listen to how Moses is described in Numbers chapter 12, right before our passage. Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. And he is living that out here. He's the most humble, most unself-oriented man on the face of the earth. He says no to this tremendous opportunity that God would give him to solve all of his problems and be the most, most significant person in history, perhaps, up to that time. But instead, he humbles, he's humble and concerned for others. He's unself-oriented. This is the life that God loves to bless. It's the place from which you can pray prayers God loves to grant. And humility and God-honoring prayer often go hand-to-hand in the Scriptures. Second Chronicles 7 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Isaiah writes about it too. He says, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And that's Moses, right? Moses is humble beyond belief and totally unselfish in his praying, and God is glad to hear and honor Moses' prayer. It's the place God loves to bless, from which we can pray prayers he loves to hear, a place of sacrificial love even for the undeserving, for the rebels, which that last phrase, if you're a Christ follower, should sound a lot like your Savior, sacrificial love for the undeserving. Now, notice the basis for Moses' prayer for his appeal. Um, He says, the Egyptians will hear about it. God, if you wipe your people out, for you brought up this people in your might and among them, and they'll tell the inhabitants of the land. It says, um, the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring his people into the land. He wasn't powerful enough. He couldn't pull it off. Moses' prayer is birthed from this humble love. It's anchored in a concern, not just for the people, but for the reputation and the fame of God, for the name of Yahweh. In a lot of your Bibles, you'll notice that the word, the expression Lord is all caps, L-O-R-D. We lost that in our translation to the screen here for some reason. But that's, that's a representation of the name Yahweh. 
whenever that's in there, it's a way of protecting and honoring the name Yahweh. It's God's own name. God loves to grant prayers that exalt his name and bring him glory. And that's the center of his will and purpose for us, right? Um, 1 Corinthians, Paul says it real simply. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's our purpose. And you can imagine how, how eager God is to grant requests that are anchored in the honor and glory of his name. And again, that's, that's the heart of Moses' requests. Because if God wipes out his own people, he'll be belittled in the eyes of the Egyptians. You know, God had just gone to extraordinarily miraculous lengths to deliver his people from slavery amongst the Egyptians. Remember those plagues, those 10 plagues? Um, scholars have noted that those 10 plagues have a remarkable correspondence to the pantheon of, of Egyptian gods, that God is demonstrating through those those plagues, that he is superior to all other gods. And now the Egyptians are going to say, eh, maybe not so much. Couldn't even get his people in the promised land. And they're going to tell the Canaanites who are in that promised land, and they'll see that God is not great enough, and they'll be encouraged in their opposition to God's people as they enter the land. So Moses prays that God will not let his name be belittled in the eyes of the nation. He does it for a number of reasons. It's just not right that the great God should be made small. It's not good for the nations to think God is small and impotent, less than all that he is, because then they'll be tempted to go worship their idols. They'll miss the purpose they were made for. Isaiah says, they were created, too, for God's glory. It's heartbreaking for Moses to see his beloved slandered. Okay. I don't know if you've ever been around a situation where somebody talked down about your kids or about your spouse. Um, that's a sad day. It's a, it's, a, it's a mad day, usually, but it's also a sad day that someone would speak ill of your beloved. Think less of them than is true. And for Moses, as we should be, he's grieved when his great God is, is dissed by the nations. Um, so Moses prays for God to have mercy on his own people, not just for their sake, sure, for their sake, but for God's sake, too. He is praying for God's fame to be protected, for God to show himself great and powerful by loving and forgiving his people. Now, let me ask you, do you pray that way? I, have, I, I know that it's not my natural inclination when I pray for people. Uh, and so I really have to be intentional about it. But I've also seen that when I pray for God's sake and not just my friend's sake or my sake, that it's good for me to pray that way. It, it restores God in my mind as great and exalted and worthy of praise. Um, so how do you pray that way? I think you start with an expressed concern for God's name. Ima imagine you have a friend. His name is Fred. He used to be in your small group. He's a professing Christian. But Fred has fallen headlong into sin. 
Let's say he's, he's left his wife and he's run off with someone else. Um, normally, we would pray for Fred. Lord, have mercy on Fred and rescue Fred. He's in bad shape. But if we pray like Moses, we would not only pray prayers for Fred's sake, we'd pray prayers for God's sake. We'd say, God, don't let your name be shamed by someone who calls himself a follower of Jesus to be so ensnared in sin. Show yourself greater than all of that and rescue him. Okay? We are we're, we're praying prayers like this one in Psalm 79. This is a great prayer to pray for someone mired in sin. Um, help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us, deliver Fred, and atone for his sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations, why should his family, why should his co-workers, why should everybody who knows him say, where's his God? Okay. So we had to pray not only for our sake or for our brother or sister's sake, but for God's sake asking him to show himself great and merciful before a watching world. Okay. There's a second part to Moses' prayer that I want us to touch on. It's those last three verses. Moses continues, and he says, having asked God not to judge his people because it would, it would reduce his fame among the nations. Now he says, now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Over and over again, he said. Now, Moses begins this part of his prayer for the people based on God's promise, right? Be great, as you have promised. And then in verse 18, Moses does something real interesting that's real helpful for us. He quotes God's words back to God. Because this little expression that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, um, it was given to Moses by God following that golden calf incident back in Exodus 34. Watch. The Lord passed by Moses, and this is what how the Lord revealed himself to Moses. He proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Sound familiar? Um, Moses is quoting God back to God. Now, it's not that God forgot who he was, okay? He's not going, oh, gosh, thanks, Moses. Forgot I was loving for a minute there. God, the wrath thing just went off. Thanks. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. But Moses is rooting his prayer in the surest place that he knows. It's the epicenter of God's will, the character of God promised in Scripture by God himself. See, this is the surest way to know that we are praying prayers that God is happy to grant. They are for his glory, rooted in his own words of Scripture, especially in his own character. Now, there are lots of ways to do this, but I love the advice that comes from Gordon Wenham. I'll put it on the screen for you um, so you can read it with me. The Psalms, they are designed to be prayed. 
Okay? It's really simple, really good advice. We've already seen it in the psalm that we looked at. But here's another one, okay? Especially helpful for, again, someone like our friend Fred, who has fallen deeply into sin. We could pray Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. God, be a refuge for Fred. Show yourself to be an impenetrable refuge where sin cannot break in and steal Fred away from us. Don't let Fred be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver him, God. God, you are righteous. Show yourself to be so righteous and step into Fred's world. Incline your ear. If Fred prays just for a moment, incline your ear to it and rescue him speedily. Show people that you are powerful enough to rescue Fred just like that. And you can go on through the psalm. There's lots of psalms that lend themselves to this kind of praying. Um, as you read through the Psalms, you may want to kind of keep a list of some of those. You may want to tag them to people that you're praying for. If you have a prayer list, I, I hope you do, of people you're interceding for. You may want to write Psalm 31 under their name or Psalm 23 next to their name and use it as a way to pray God's character um, and to build your prayer on that as, as you intercede for them. See, the glory of God and the character of God revealed by God himself forms the basis for Moses' bold request. And this is that request. He said all of this, and then he says, please pardon the iniquity of your people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven his people from Egypt until now. So let Scripture shape your prayers Pray scripture for friends that God would be glorified and exalted as great as he rescues our friends. Okay. And this prayer of Moses, it's a good example, especially for friends and people deeply ensnared by sin. Um, pray like Moses. Ask God to be exalted in their life as he does what only he can do. Only God can rescue from sin. Show that God. Display that in their life. So we pray not only for their sake, but for God's sake. It can be used when we pray for our missionaries and the people that they're trying to reach. We can pray, God, for the people in southeastern Turkey where, where Rhett and Shannon are. We can pray because they are worshiping false gods and idols, really gods that are no gods there. And we can pray for God to show up through them and and lead someone to faith in Christ in that city so that God will be shown to be greater, greater than the gods they worship. You can pray these kinds of prayers for your friends who don't know Christ, who are deeply ensnared with no Savior looking instead to the gods of our culture, hoping for peace and rescue from them. We pray for God to be exalted and show himself great in their lives as well. So this morning, will you stand in the gap like Moses for people who are facing quite possibly the judgment of God and beg his mercy for them based on his character? to honor and exalt him amongst their family and friends and town and everybody who knows them, their co-workers. Like Moses did. And really, as you think about it, just like Jesus did and really does. Um, 
All of this is predicated on your embracing Christ as your intercessor, the one who stood before God the Father and interceded for you. Hebrews talks about Jesus as our intercessor. In chapter 7, it says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save the uttermost. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus stood and, in fact, stands in the gap and, and pled our case. He secured our pardon by his intercessory work on the cross for our sins. So this morning, before you can pray like Moses, you need to welcome Jesus' prayers for you as your intercessor, as your Savior, that only recognizing that only Jesus and surely Jesus can secure your pardon for your sins before a holy God. So if you would, let's bow together and let's pray. Father, have mercy on us, your people. We, we, like your people long ago, we deserve your judgment. It's fitting for us. And yet you too, in response to the prayers of your son, Jesus, have brought grace and mercy.